Hello and welcome to Grasping Scripture. Today we're going to delve into the Gospel of John. That is the first chapter of the Gospel of John with a little bit of introduction. And my hope is that as we study this Gospel together, you'll be able to do, well, just as the name of this podcast suggests, you'll be able to grasp hold of Scripture. Because God gives us his word so that we can hear it, so that we can understand it, so that it can be applied to our hearts and our lives. So let's take hold of his word and let's let it shape us as we seek to follow him. Or maybe you're joining us learning to or seeking to learn more about this Jesus character, more about what faith in Christ is and what it's about. Well, the Gospel of John is a great place to start with that exploration. So I welcome you as part of that. If you're exploring or if you're a believer looking to just uh, study and enrich your faith and enrich your, your knowledge and application of the word, then I welcome you as part of our journey through scripture together as we seek to truly grasp scripture. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the opportunity to study your word. We thank you for the richness that is found in it, that you have revealed yourself to us in Jesus the Christ, that you have spoken in your word and given us opportunity to know you, your claim and call upon our lives and the links to which you have gone to, to redeem us, your lost and fallen creation. Lord, we thank you for Jesus the Christ, and for your word. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, the Gospel of John, it it stands apart from the other Gospels in a certain sense. It doesn't parallel the other Gospels very much. Its timeline or chronology of the events that happened are... Uh, not necessarily in the same order that they are in the other Gospels, and it's even written with a bit of a different focus to it. So let me walk you through the Gospels just briefly. To begin with, you have Mark, which was written probably between 65 and 70 AD. It was the first Gospel written, and Mark's Gospel is short, it's concise, it's to the point, And it is most likely Peter's account, uh, we understand it to be Peter's account, uh, recorded by John Mark while they were in Alexandria ministering together. And it was to help solidify the core of the Gospels, or of the Gospel, for the early churches at that time. Uh, Then between, somewhere between 65 and about 80 at the latest, Matthew was written, and Matthew wrote from a Hebraic perspective. He was definitely laying out, here is how Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, and that's a recurring theme within the Gospel of Matthew. Luke, on the other hand, who wrote during that same period, 65 to 80 probably, wrote Luke and Acts. They kind of go together, uh, part one and part two, if you will. They're written from a a completely different perspective, more of a Gentile perspective. They're written as a a research study, interviews with witnesses, uh, verified accounts brought together and compiled for the purpose of showing who Christ is and introducing Christ and enriching the faith of believers. Enriching? Is, Is that a word? Enriching. There we go. Enriching the faith of the believers. And, you know, Luke states all that as you can study Luke, and we will in the days to come as well, uh, and see why he wrote it. He says so at the beginning of his books. So check them out. Now we get to John. John, we don't know exactly when it was written, but we know it was written before 90 AD. And indications are it might have been, you know, closer to the 90 end of that spectrum. We know it was written before he wrote Revelation, which was written while he was in exile on the Isle of Patmos, which happened about 90 AD. So we know it was written before that point. Um, So when exactly? Not sure. But we know it was a later writing than the other Gospels. And it was written for a different purpose. I mentioned that earlier. John wrote his Gospel and really works on this interplay between darkness and light. 
And that's not entirely accidental. Even the way he starts his gospels, we dig in the chapter one with these references to the, the word, to logos. Um, it really builds on an idea and an imagery that was taking hold as a heresy in the early church. Now, I'm not saying John is spouting heresy. I'm saying he's writing his gospel in such a way to confront that early heresy. That heresy later becomes known as Gnosticism. At this point, we'd probably call it proto-Gnosticism. And it, it was something that kind of developed out of Jewish mysticism mixed with some Greek thought and, and some other things. But it was a real challenge to the early church because it denied who Christ was. It denied the incarnation. He was not God with us. He just appeared before us. He appeared to die in the crucifixion. And, and all of this is just emanations of the being of Christ and, and whatnot. And it, it's garbage. I mean, just be blunt. It's heresy. It is contrary to the teachings of Christ. It is contrary to the revealed word of God throughout Scripture, New and Old Testament. But it, like many things that aren't correct, was becoming popular and was a real challenge to the early Christian church. It was confusing to some believers because they were getting mixed messages, and there were purveyors of this idea that were working their way into the early church. John doesn't confront that directly in his gospel. Now, he does some in his epistle letters, but in his gospel, he works with the themes that were themes touched on by proto-Gnosticism, this darkness and light play and uh, things of that nature, an emphasis on the word. And what John does is relates very personal accounts, stories that he was there for and remembers. And so he gives us a lot of stuff that's not in the other gospels, but a lot of stuff that is rooted in his own experience. It doesn't contradict the other gospels, but he's writing with a different purpose at a later time, from his personal experience. Each of the Gospels gives us a facet of the life of Jesus. No one Gospel gives us a complete image of that life. We're getting eyewitness testimonies from multiple eyewitnesses, and when we put them together, we get a fuller image. So don't please don't read John and go, well, that contradicts with the other Gospels, because it doesn't. It gives us a different facet of understanding, and all of them put together give us a clearer image of who Jesus is and what he means to us. So, all of that is background, and I know it's a lot of background, but there's a lot of background to the Gospel of John and how it fits into the, the timeline of what's going on in the first century world and in the early church. And we need that background as we start digging into his word. Now, some of the things that we'll bring out, John does tie much of what Jesus does at the temple with different Jewish festivals, and we'll get into that as well. It's not accidental that these things happen the way they did. So I welcome you as we continue this journey together. That's the groundwork I wanted to lay. Now we're going to get into the text. And it is, the Gospel of John is a beautifully written book. And I, I, I say this about every book we study, but I love this book. Um, I hope you do too as we study it together. So let's look at chapter one. Well, as we look at chapter 1, starting in verse 1, um, some scholars think that these first five verses are, are maybe something that was used in worship in the early church and that John is quoting it here, and, and that's possible. I mean, John shepherded the church at Ephesus after Paul and was, in fact, pastor of that church for a number of years until he was put into exile on the Isle of Patmos, and that was a anchored church, if you will, for Asia Minor. And John is seen kind of as the apostle over Asia Minor. So these might have been words from the church that the people were acquainted with, or it might be something that John is inspired to pen right here and now. But it ties into that whole play of, of the word and, and darkness and light. Listen to the words of one through five and then 
he shifts gears a little. He begins to back away from those, those heavy poetic words to telling us a story. But in that story, he fleshes out what he says in the first five verses. Let's look at it. In verse one, it says, in the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him and nothing was created through except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness can never extinguish it. Hmm. Now that reads different than what you're familiar with probably, but that's okay. This is new living translation, but it is a good translation. Uh, does very well at rendering what is actually said and gives us some food for thought, doesn't it? And the meaning is the same as what you may be familiar with from other translations, or maybe you've never read this before. Well, here it is. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. And it is through the word we see in the rest of this that everything is created. And that word is the light that brings life. And it shines in the darkness. And darkness cannot extinguish it, cannot be victorious over it. That sets the stage for everything else John has to say. And he's making it clear here. And he'll tell us who the word is. But the word is a person. And the word is preexistent to creation. The word existed before creation. And the word was with God. And not only that, the word is God. The word was with God and the word was God. There's no separation, no distinction there. Uh, he's, he's touching on the concept of the Trinity. He hasn't brought in the Holy Spirit yet, but you've got Father and Son. Oh, I just gave it away who the word is. Uh, but you've got God the Father and God the Son. And it is through the Son, through the Word, that everything that is was created. Now, this plays on a concept in, in early Jewish thought uh, from that time period, and it carried over into Christian thought as well, of the Word of God, of God bringing order, His, His creative activity. And it not just personifies it, but it identifies it. Well, let's pick up in verse six and here John shifts to telling a story, not a made up story, but recounting a narrative. There you go. Uh, recounting a narrative. And he's going to touch back on these first five verses at occasional points along the way, because he's helping us to understand what those five verses are about. He says, God sent a man, John the Baptist which, by the way, is not where the Baptist denomination, of which I am part, comes from. Okay, that has its history in like 1609 or something like that. This way back before, this is John the Baptist. Remember uh, camel's hair and locusts, that jazz? Okay. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. The light. Who is the light? Well, the light is the word, right? The word gave life to everything that was created and his life brought light to everyone. God sent, you know, that's back in verse what, three. Then we get to verse six. God sent a man, John the Baptist, to tell about the light so that everyone might believe because of his testimony. John himself was not the light. He was simply a witness to tell about the light. The one who is the true light, who gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 10, he came into the very world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. 
But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. Wow. Let's look at 10 through 13 again. I mean, he set up who John the Baptist is, but here is the message that John the Baptist is giving. His declaration that the light has come into the world. He came into the world he created, but the world didn't recognize him. Now, that's John the Apostle's summation of John the Baptist's message. He came into the world. The very world he created, God stepped into his creation. The creator becomes part of the creation. Why? To save it. But the world didn't recognize him. He came to his own people, and even they rejected him. He came to the Jews, his chosen people, set apart, given the message, and they rejected him. But... To all who believed him and accepted him. Now, that's not within any particular group. To all in his creation, all people who believed him and accept, accepted him. To them, he gave the right to become children of God. If you know me, one of my pet peeves, um, and it really gets to me at Christmas time because it's in one of the Christmas carols that we sing, uh, we're all God's children. Well, no, we're not all God's children. We're all God's creation. But to gain the right to become a child of God, to be gain the right to be called the children of God, we have to do something. We have to be in right relationship with him. We have to believe and accept him. And to those, he gave the right to become the children of God. Now, what's it look like when we do that? Well, verse 13, they are reborn, not with a physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. We are reborn into a new creation by God when we accept Christ, when we accept him and believe Now let's pick up in 14. He says, so the word became human. Now the word, capital W, from back there in one through five, that word that he was talking about, word already existed, word was with God, word was God. Verse 14, so the word became human and made his home among us. Verse 14 parallels verse 10. He came into the very world he created. How did he do that? The word became human. God in the flesh. And he made his home among us. He was full of unfailing love and faithfulness. And we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son, Now, if there's any question, verse 14, 14 should clear it up. The Word is Jesus. He is God. And He is human because the Word, God, became human and made His home among us. Now, I can't fully explain it, but the concept is this. Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, is God in the flesh. Isaiah talks about him having the name Emmanuel, God with us. He was fully God, and yet fully human, unlike anyone else. He has that dual nature. Well, he goes on and says, and we have seen his glory, the glory of the Father's one and only Son. John testified about him. 
when he shouted to the crowds, this is the one I was talking about when I said someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. John was acknowledging, hey, Jesus, which by the way was John's cousin. No indication that they really met prior to that encounter at the Jordan, but he's going, hey, this guy, this is the one I've been telling you about. He's coming after me and he is far greater than I am for he existed long before me. John is approaching this from different angles. John the Apostle is approaching this from different angles, talking about John the Baptist's message and ministry and saying, look, every turn here points back to in the beginning was the word. Points back to Jesus is God. And he came here for us. Don't forget that, okay? If you get nothing else out of the Gospel of John, latch on to that idea. Someone is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. Verse 16, from his abundance, we have all received one gracious blessing after another. For the law was given through Moses, but God's unfailing love and faithfulness came through Jesus Christ. So not just the law that points out our sin, but a savior. Forgiveness for our sin comes through Christ. 18. No one has ever seen God, but the unique one who is himself God is near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. No one has ever seen God, okay? But the unique one, unique one, capital O-N-E, who is himself God. John is boldly and plainly declaring that Jesus is God. And that he's near to the Father's heart. He has revealed God to us. A member of the Trinity, part of the Godhead, part of who God is, is making God known. Understand how huge that is. That's And it's flying in the face of some of the, the Gnostic ideas that we get shadows. We get these, these veiled images. We, we can't really know who God is. We just have emanations from God that help us to, to latch hold of a little bit. And he's going, no, we know who God is because God is Jesus. And Jesus is showing us God the Father. And he came here for a reason. Um, wow, John's really confronting that idea, but he's also laying out that truth very explicitly. So, you know, please don't, don't say, well, I'm not sure Jesus is God. You know, Jesus is a great man, great, but he's not God. Um, yeah, scripture says Jesus is God. Deal with it. You may disagree with it and you're entitled. God gives you that freedom to disagree with it, but don't lie about it. Don't say, oh, no, it doesn't say that God, Jesus is God. Yeah, it does. In fact, Jesus himself said it. We can go to C.S. Lewis with his lunar lunatic, uh, excuse me, liar, lunatic, or Lord. There we go. I can speak today. Um, illustration where he says, look, you, you've got to believe one of three things about Jesus. You can't just say Jesus was a good teacher, or he's a good moral figure, or he's a good man, or he was a good this or that, and not acknowledge that he is God, because either he was a lunatic, either he was somebody that thought he was God, and in today's world, if we have somebody that shows up and claims that they're God and acts accordingly, we put them in an institution. In fact, most of the people here in the United States that think they're God, we put in an institution called Congress. That's a joke. I'm not. Um, no, we put them in mental institutions because there's something wrong there. So 
was Jesus nuts? Was he deranged? Was Jesus a liar? I mean, we say he's a great moral teacher and he taught all these wonderful things. Well, yeah, is that true if he was a liar? I mean, about the most basic thing in his life, he was a liar? Well, that doesn't fit. He can't be a great teacher, a great moral leader if he's nuts. Can't be a great teacher, a great moral leader if he's a liar. A liar, lunatic? Well, we're left with one option. He's Lord. So if you believe Jesus and you want to do a shout out to his teachings, then pay attention to his teachings. It was Jesus himself that said, no one comes to the Father except by me. That's a pretty exclusive statement. That's that's a statement that says, you know, Islam's not going to get you there. Buddhism's not going to get you there. Hinduism's not going to get you there. Being very religious in a Christian church or denomination is not going to get you there. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. So you need to deal with who you believe Jesus is. Now, you can rewrite scripture and you can delete large sections of scripture that you don't like. And you can try to, uh, you know, just say, well, I don't believe that part. I don't think that way. But, you know, you don't really have that privilege to do that and claim that it's genuine. We have God's word handed down to us through the centuries. It's cohesive, written over a 1,500-year period, and yet it's one story. Um, Most of the things that people point out as conflicts in it are really perspective problems or trying to understand it in our current culture instead of the culture in which it was written. But it is consistent, and it is morally consistent. It is consistent in its teaching, and it's consistent in its proclamation of Jesus as Messiah, Savior, Christ, our way of salvation. So you're going to have to deal with that. And John is putting it out there very plainly, especially in that first part of his gospel. So I challenge you, if you want to follow Christ, read God's word and follow Christ. If you're exploring, then it's time right here at the beginning of John's gospel to grapple with how honest you are in your exploration. And if in your exploration, it leads you to Jesus as being Christ, as being Savior, then um, be honest enough to deal with that. Well, let's keep on in his word. As we continue on, starting in verse 19, Uh, We see a little bit of shift here. Uh, The testimony uh, that was given by John the Baptist about Jesus, that declaration that was made, now we're, we're seeing a shift where he's questioned. John the Baptist is questioned, and we get John the Apostle's telling of that. Starting in 19, he says, This was John's testimony. When the Jewish leaders sent priests and temple assistants from Jerusalem to ask John, Who are you? He came right out and said, I am not the Messiah. Well, then, who are you? They asked. Are you Elijah? No, he replied. Are you the prophet we are expecting? No. Then who are you? We need an answer for those who sent us. What do you have to say about yourself? And John replied in the words of the prophet Isaiah, I am a voice in the wilderness. Clear the way for the Lord is coming. Now that's a quote from what the voice in the wilderness is saying. That's from Isaiah 53, which was talking about John the Baptist, actually, proclaiming the way for the Messiah that was coming. And so they're asking John, they're seeing people go out and be baptized in the Jordan, a baptism of repentance, a baptism seeking to make themselves clean before God and be obedient to God and, and turn away from lifestyles of sin. 
so that they may be servants of the holy God. And John was pointing them towards the Messiah that was coming. It was a repent for the Lord is at hand. He's coming. Be ready. And so when the leaders there in Jerusalem sent out priests and temple assistants to ask him, hey, who are you? Because they thought, you know, he might be Elijah come back. He might be a prophet. He, you know, any number of things. Who is this guy? Is he the Messiah? And, you know, John's like, no, no, I'm none of those things. Well, who are you? And he quotes from Isaiah. He is the herald. He is the one who is proclaiming the way. He is one who comes in the spirit of Elijah to point towards the Lord and to declare the Lord. Now in verse 24, then the Pharisees who had been sent asked him, if you aren't the Messiah or Elijah or the prophet, what right do you have to baptize? You know, you're not Elijah, you're not the Messiah and the, the prophet that Moses, uh, then what do you think you're doing? Who gave you this authority? What right do you have to baptize? And John told them, I baptize with water. But right here in the crowd is someone you do not recognize. Through his ministry, or though his ministry follows mine, I am not even worthy to be his slave and untie the straps of his sandals. So he's about to do a big reveal on them, okay? They're out there going, who are you? Who? What gives you the right to do this? And he goes, you know, big deal. I'm baptizing with water, but you know, what I'm doing is insignificant compared to what's about to happen. Because in the crowd here today is somebody Oh, somebody so great, somebody who is coming that I'm not even worthy to be a slave of. I'm not even worthy to be the guy that unlaces his sandals at the end of a day when his feet are filthy. I mean, that's the kind of expression he's making here. I am nobody to this guy when you compare the two of us. And so that's his announcement to him. And you know, they got to be sitting there going, what? Verse 28, this encounter took place in Bethany, an area east of the Jordan River where John was baptizing. So that rounds out that questioning that, that, Hey, who are you? What's it? So in case there's any confusion, John the Baptist has made it abundantly clear. He is not the Messiah. He is not the word become flesh. He's not the guy that it's talking about in John 1 14. And he's not the word talked about in the first five verses, but he's pointing towards the one that is. He is the herald for the king that is coming. As we move into verse 29, it's the next day and the story changes a bit. It says, the next day, John saw Jesus, that's John the Baptist, saw Jesus coming towards him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, the Lamb of God, what does he mean by that? Well, it's a reference to the Passover Lamb. It's a reference to the sacrificial Lamb that saves the people that atones for the sins of the people. God had promised there would be a sacrifice, not the temple sacrifices that pointed towards the sacrifice God would provide, but the sacrifice God would provide to atone for the sins of the world, to pay the death penalty price that's on our heads for us. So we would no longer be under the condemnation of the law that pointed out our sin and need for a savior, but instead we would have the Savior. And so John looks up and he says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He is the one I was talking about when I said, a man is coming after me who is far greater than I am, for he existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah, but I have been baptizing with water. 
so that he might be revealed to Israel. Well, why was John doing what he was doing? He said, look, he's existed long before me. I did not recognize him as the Messiah. But I didn't know then what I know now. But I've been obedient to what God told me to do. I have been baptizing with water. Why? So that he might be revealed to Israel. So that this moment would happen. Verse 32, then John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I didn't know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify that he is the chosen one of God. So when did John come to realize, John the Baptist come to realize that Jesus was that Messiah that he was proclaiming coming? Well, he says, I was baptizing with water because God told me, do this. And the when you do this, the one that you see, the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Does it mean there was a dove there? No. Could there have been? Sure. Could the Holy Spirit have manifested to, to appear something like a dove? Sure. But notice the term there. I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove. Like a dove descends, the Holy Spirit descended from heaven and rested upon him. John's saying, hey, God revealed to me that when I was baptizing with water, there'd be somebody I would baptize and this would happen. And that would be the indicator, this is Jesus. Yeah. Now we see that account fleshed out in the other Gospels, but here is John the Apostle's retelling of it. Getting the point there across that we have now, by the 32nd verse of the first chapter, we have now declared the entirety of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and the Holy Spirit. If there's any question, yes, the word Trinity never appears in Scripture. I'll give you that. But in 32 verses, we've managed to have all three aspects, if you will, all three persons of the Trinity made evident and all evident in Jesus John testified, I saw the Holy Spirit descending like a dove from heaven and resting upon him. I did not know he was the one, but when God sent me to baptize with water, he told me, the one on whom you see the Spirit descend and rest is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I saw this happen to Jesus, so I testify, he is the chosen one of God. John can't really make it any more clearer than that. Uh, either John the Baptist or John the Apostle, as he recounts this. It is abundantly clear who Jesus is. He is the chosen one of God. It is confirmed with this miraculous sign of, of seeing the Holy Spirit descend like a dove on him. The Spirit descended and rest on Jesus. He is God. In verse 35, he begins, John the Apostle begins telling us about the calling of the first disciples. It says, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. As Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. When John's two disciples heard this, they followed Jesus. Now, why did they do that? Why well, they bailed on John and took off after you? Why? Because they knew what John had been declaring. John had been declaring the Messiah was coming. John had been declaring that the Lamb of God was appearing. And now John was able to put a face with what he knew what was happening. And it was Jesus. And he sees Jesus walk by and he's talking to his disciples and he goes, Hey guys, that's the Lamb of God. You know, that, that Lamb I've been proclaiming, that God was sending the Lamb of God, that's the guy. And so his disciples are like, well, that's what this is all about. We're out of here, man. Bye. And they go follow Jesus. 
in verse 38, Jesus looked around and saw them following. What do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher. Where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying, and they remained with him the rest of the day. Now, there's some significance there that we may miss. In Jewish tradition, uh, a rabbi, a teacher, a, a, a spiritual leader, um, people that wanted to be his disciples would request it of him, and most were turned away. Rabbis could be very picky about who they chose as disciples because the role of a disciple of a rabbi was to to learn not just everything about them, but to learn how they thought, what they thought, and to emulate those. You went where the rabbi went. You stayed where the rabbi stayed. You ate what the rabbi ate. You learned to view the world the way the rabbi viewed the world and talk the way the rabbi talked. I mean, you were to emulate the rabbi, the teacher. So when they go to him and they, just by calling him rabbi, uh, there's almost an appeal there. And when they say, Rabbi, where are you staying? There's a request. We acknowledge you as teacher, as our rabbi. Can we now follow you? And Jesus gives them essentially an invitation, come and see. And so they went and they spent the remainder of the day with him. Verse 40, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. Andrew went to find his brother Simon and told him, We have found the Messiah, which is Christ, which means Christ. When Andrew brought Simon to meet Peter, looking intent or excuse me, wow, let me back up. Verse 42. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. There we go. Looking intently at Simon, Jesus said, Your name is Simon, son of John, but you will be called Cephas, which means Peter. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, Come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's hometown. So, We've got this group of guys, and Andrew was one of the ones that was with John, and John said, hey, there's the Lamb of God. And so he's one of the guys that immediately started to follow Jesus. At the time, Jesus hadn't invited him to follow. He came requesting to follow. And then the next step he made, and it's a wonderful example to us as believers, if you know Christ as Savior and Lord, Andrew is a beautiful example of how you should live your life. He not only sought to follow Jesus with his own life, but then, you know, day two, what's the first thing he does? He goes and finds someone else and brings them to Jesus. And that someone else happened to be Peter, Cephas. It means little stone. Hmm. And then Philip. The next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, come, follow me. Philip was from Bethsaida, Andrew and Peter's. Andrew and Peter's hometown. So there's the shift. Uh, he's now called Peter, not Simon, or Simon Peter, I guess we call him sometimes. Well, Philip comes to, Philip was, was from the hometown. Philip went and looked for Nathaniel and told him, oh, wait. Here's another guy that's going and finding someone else to tell him about Jesus. We have found the very person Moses and the prophets wrote about. His name is Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. Nazareth, explained, or exclaimed Nathaniel. How can anything good come from Nazareth? Nazareth was a small town. It was backwoods. It was let's just say it was not well thought of by most of the other Israelite cities, okay? Uh, cities and villages. Nothing, nothing really happened there. So Nathaniel, you know, Philip comes and talks to him, and Nathaniel's like, yeah, you found the Messiah, and you're telling me he's from Nazareth. 
sure. You know, what, what, what can come from Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Come and see for yourself. Quit operating on assumption and come see who this guy is. This is what he tells him. Now, is there a message there for us? Absolutely. Quit assuming you know Jesus when you haven't actually come to meet Jesus. Quit going by what everyone says. In fact, I'll tell you, don't take my word for who Jesus is. Go to his word. Find him. Come see for yourself, Philip replied. Now in verse 47, it says, as they approached, Jesus said, now get this, you can imagine the scene. He's just kind of mouthed off to Philip about <laughs> Nazareth, right? All right, fine. You want me to come? I'll come meet him. Now, it may not have been his attitude, but that seems to be the attitude in the text. What well, says, as they approached, Jesus said, now here is a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. Then Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. Then Nathanael exclaimed, Rabbi, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. What happened there? Well, we gloss over the Nazareth comment. But as the guy comes to Jesus, Jesus looks at Nathanael and he says, look, I can tell your character. He says, here's a genuine son of Israel, a man of complete integrity. How do you know about me? Nathanael asked. And Jesus replied, I could see you under the fig tree before Philip found you. This again is, is a miraculous thing. It wasn't, oh yeah, I saw you out there under the fig tree. No, it's like, I knew you before Philip ever showed up to meet you. Oh, and so Nathaniel, understanding what's happening here, says, he exclaims, Rabbi, you know, teacher, you are the son of God, the king of Israel. He makes that proclamation that Jesus is the lamb of God, the Messiah. The Messiah they were waiting for was the son of God, the king of Israel. And so Nathaniel proclaims that there on that day. And becomes a follower of Christ, a disciple. Now, as we round out the chapter, looking at verse 50, it says, Jesus asked him, asked Nathaniel, do you believe this just because I told you I have seen you under the tree? You will see greater things than this. So he told him, look, if you believe just based on that, huh, you're going to see things that are greater than that. Then he said, I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the Son of Man. The one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. You see, uh, that's Old Testament reference there. He's referring back to Genesis, to the account of, of Jacob, the, the, you know, Jacob's ladder, the Jacob's vision there on the Jabbok river of angels, you know, a ladder down from heaven and angels descending and ascending on that ladder being about the bidding of the Lord. Now, Jesus is saying, Hey, that bridge between heaven and man. The one who is that bridge, who is that ladder between heaven, the dwelling of God and man. He's saying, that's me. I tell you the truth. You will all see heaven open and the angels of God going up and down on the son of man. I'm the bridge. I'm the thing that closes that gap between the creator and the creation. The one who is the stairway between heaven and earth. And that concludes the first chapter of John's gospel. 
that calling of those first disciples, the, the baptism, the proclamation of who the Christ is, the Lamb of God, and it all ties back to in the beginning. The Word already existed. The Word was with God and the Word was God. He existed in the beginning with God. God created everything through him. Nothing has been created except through him. The word gave life to everything that was created. And his life brought light to everyone. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness can never extinguish it. My prayer for you is that if you know the light you will follow Jesus since he is the light and if you do not know Jesus as Savior and Lord my prayer is that through this study through looking at his word and hearing what it says you will reach that point of turning to God believing and being saved not because you deserve it because none of us do not because we're good enough or we've earned it because none of us have and none of us are but because he loved us so much to step into his creation to save us let's pray heavenly father we again thank you for your word thank you that you have revealed yourself to us We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.